it will technically have the zoning designation of RVP. That fact has the surrounding community beside themselves. You know, Ethan, NIMBYism is alive and well. <laughs> Joe Callantine has both the desire and the vision to live tiny in community. He already has built and lives in his own tiny house. He owns the land for the tiny community, and now he is working through the legal and regulatory steps to make his dream a reality. Joe is incredibly patient and kind and just great at describing how this whole process works. So as more and more people build tinies, there's more demand for finding places to park and also more people who want to live legally and don't want to question whether they are allowed to live in their tiny house or not. And so Joe is just another guy who is pursuing that and doing it in a way that is going to bring other tiny dwellers along with him. I hope you stick around. I'd like to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode, Precision Temp. Precision Temp is making one problem to solve two issues that I know everyone deals with in a tiny house, running out of hot water and heating your tiny house or schoolie. Precision Temp has made the amazing Twin Temp Junior propane tankless water heater, which provides unlimited hot water for your tiny house and hydronic heating. This means you get warm, heated floors so there are no cold spots. It's designed specifically for tiny houses and features whisper quiet operation as well as high efficiency. If you want more information on how Precision Temp can help make tiny living easier and more comfortable, visit precisiontemp.com. While you're there, use the coupon code THLP for $100 off any Precision Temp unit plus free shipping. That website again is precisiontemp.com. Coupon code THLP for $100 off any Precision Temp unit plus free shipping. Thank you so much to Precision Temp for sponsoring our show. All right, I am here with Joe Callantine. Joe is the founder and president slash CEO of Life Size Tiny Communities. He is currently an electrician in Colorado Springs, Colorado, a tiny home enthusiast and a DIY tiny homeowner. In 2018, he realized there is a big problem with tiny homes being allowed for full-time living because of the regulatory gray area they fall in with cities and counties. Thus, he began his journey to bring community-style tiny home living into the mainstream. The housing market desperately needs more attainable options. Joe Callantine, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Ethan. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks for being here. I was hoping we could just start with you. Um, you know, can you tell us kind of your your tiny story, how you found out about tiny houses and and what led you to want to become a, a DIY tiny house dweller? Such a, a loaded question early on here. Okay. <laughs> Uh, let me. Oh, I didn't, let I me didn't realize it was a loaded question. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's totally fine. Um, I ha- I have to preface a little bit with what really kind of got me into just sustainable living in general. Yeah. yeah. At, at one point in my my mid twenties, I believed that 
uh, the world was just going to, well, go awry and it would be every man for themselves. Mm -hmm. So I set out to learn how to be as self-sustaining as I possibly could. So it set me down the path of renewable energy. I actually hold a degree in photovoltaic design, okay. which uh, photovoltaic is just a fancy word for solar. So I know a lot about solar and storage capacity with batteries. And it also had me question, well, what happens if my solar breaks mm. and who fixes that? So that obviously set me off onto the path of becoming an electrician because electricians are the people who work on solar panels and the inverters and the wiring and the things like that to connect to your home or business. Okay. And between the two of them, I figured it was a great marriage between being an electrician and having the hands-on technical skills, as well as the, the knowledge of the, the college degree and how, how to design solar systems and how, how they work within the house. Yeah. And throughout all of that process, I, I learned a whole lot about uh, backyard homesteading and regenerative agriculture and really just try to be as self-sustaining as I possibly could. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then when I relocated from Seattle, Washington to Denver, Colorado in 2017, I stumbled across the tiny home movement. And to me, it was that third pillar in my self-sustainability because it's a lot easier to power a, a smaller home, a tiny home, if you will, with solar than it is to have a larger more traditional style home sure and to me it just it it was the last piece of the equation if you will so i started digging into tiny homes and what it what the issues are what people are saying and then the the movement as a whole meeting jay schaefer throughout this whole process was actually kind of cool you know he's the grandfather of tiny home of the tiny home movement so it's like how do we how do we incorporate all these cool things mm -hmm. and then throughout my research and development uh well research at this point i guess the the issues started creeping in as far as why cities and counties are reluctant to allow tiny homes on a full-time permanent basis and how we would be able to answer the questions that they have as an industry and be able to provide those solutions. And now as the real estate market has become what it has, where people are really frantically looking for attainable options. Mm, and yeah. now I think is a good time to be able to usher in that, like you'd mentioned uh, my intro, the community development, uh, the community aspect of tiny living. Yeah. Wow. That's, um, that's that there. I have a lot of follow-up questions there. I mean, <laughs> you know, so the, the mission then is to create these, you know, this community template. Um, where are you in that process? The, the, that's a great question. Um, uh, the, our first community is underway in the beginning stages so we have chosen to locate bonsai village our first mm -hmm. premier community great name thank you <laughs> in el paso county colorado which is mm -hmm. the, the seat of el paso county is colorado springs so we're right smack in the middle of the the front range okay. of colorado and we've chosen el paso county largely because of the fact that 
in 20, late 2017, they essentially legalized tiny homes. Ah. So El Paso County passed legislation, essentially expanded the, as much as I, I disagree with the, the route that they chose because they expanded their recreational vehicle park zoning districts. Okay. And tiny homes, of course, we are trying to emerge and be, stand on our own two feet, if you will, uh, getting away from the temporariness, if that's a word, yep. of yep. campers and RVs. So, but the fact of the matter is they have the legislative infrastructure in place. So I have purchased 29 and a half acres on okay. the west side of Colorado Springs in a little uh, mountain community that is called Cascade uh, slash Chapita Park. Mm-hmm. And with this 29 and a half acres working with the county, we've deemed that this could be a good option for setting up shop for our mm-hmm. first community. We are anticipating the official application of our rezone, which the rezoning is the next immediate step because there is, well, we can't, we can't just put the tiny homes on the current zoning designation. So uh, we're expecting our application to go in just after the first of the year. And with all fingers and toes crossed, we'll go down through the next six to nine months through this rezoning process, okay. of which there'll be public hearings and there'll be um, meetings with the planning commission. And then ultimately, the board of county commissioners will make a decision whether to approve or to approve or deny our project. So when it is rezoned because of the way this town went through its its tiny house legalization will it be zoned essentially as an rv park yes it will be it will technically have the zoning designation of rvp mm-hmm. and this that fact in and of itself has the the neighbors the surrounding community uh-huh. kind of beside themselves you know oh boy. ethan NIMBYism is alive and well <laughs> in, oh, yes. in our little community here. And oh, yes. it's, it, it's, it's across the country because a lot of people don't understand who we are as tiny home people. Yep. And they make the assumption that it'll be a blight on the surrounding community. And it's largely because of the fact that they have a lot of misinformation. Right. And what I have been trying to do as a public outreach and as the quote unquote face of life size tiny communities is to help regain control of the narrative and to paint the better picture of who we are as tiny home people and why we are choosing this lifestyle. Because that's what it comes down to is the fact that it is a lifestyle. And yes, a lot of us choose tiny for the financial reasons because, well, I spent about $74,000 building my tiny home. Mm-hmm. And that is a far, far cry from the median price point of a single family home here, here in Colorado, which is a half a million dollars. $500,000 is what you're probably going to be paying if you're buying a home in the state of Colorado. Wow. That's yeah. I mean, and that's unfortunately happening in a lot of places around the country. And, and I'm I'm curious. I want to back up a little bit and just ask you, kind of the follow up is like, what are some of the the common misconceptions that you're hearing 
from the community around your tiny home community? The biggest thing is the the stigma that surrounds existing RV parks or campgrounds, Mm -hmm. which have a lot of full-time residents. And also in tandem, the the stigma that surrounds traditional mobile home parks. Yeah. I don't I don't want to speak ill of any of that because it certainly serves a purpose and there are there are needs that are being met by those parks, the, the, yeah. the mobile homes, the yeah. campgrounds. And I, I get that. And this is where it becomes personal for me, Ethan. Mm-hmm. My mom lives in a trailer park. And when the last the last time I saw her was probably six or eight years ago, maybe ten. Mm-hmm. And I stepped foot in her trailer and it broke my heart because it was a it's it's falling apart, it's dilapidated. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately my mom is not doing well health wise. And she doesn't have the the capacity or the resources to be able to repair the things that need to be repaired. And that's why we get the stigma, because there's a lot of that. And it is unfortunate. And I I would love to be able to go and help my mom, but yeah. she's not one that's willing to take the help. And <laughs> I guess it's a pride thing at that point, you know, but yeah. Yeah. it's just... There, there's, there's a significant amount of that, and that is what a lot of people are afraid of. That when we get that RVP zoning designation, that there's going to be a a bunch of 1982 Shasta campers that are just going to be hanging out in the space, and yeah. you'll have the the Ford GT Mustang up on blocks out in the front yard, kind of scenario. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's some stereotypes and some stigma associated with RV parks and because the tiny houses are are kind of using that same zoning they're they're being lumped in in the same misconceptions yeah. oftentimes misconceptions that that is exactly what it is and then there's other development concerns that they 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 do ask about as far as uh how we're handling water and wastewater and then of course fire concerns mm-hmm. as of late Colorado certainly has been targeted by mother nature it seems with yep. wildfires yep. and these they're all legitimate concerns and they're they all have legitimate solutions however because the the nimby has really taken hold that they, they they have the stance of don't confuse me with the fact i've already made up my mind right right so when I'm trying to explain, hey, this is what we're actually doing, and this is how we can solve this this issue, they they just won't even listen to me. Yeah, that sounds hard, and and unfortunately, sometimes sometimes government is needed to force that change because you know nobody, you know, it sounds like that there are certain people opposing this that just think that you're going to kind of, for lack of a better term, you know, trash up the town and kind of make things worse for, for those who have a lot. And there might not be a way to convince them. You know, you can, you can be out there showing them, Hey, I, you know, hi, I'm Joe. I live tiny. Like, you know, I want to be a member of the community. I want to pay taxes. I have pride in my home. Like it's, it's, I maintain it. It looks great, but 
who knows that's that's a yeah. tough situation to be in well we are we we've been working with the county for uh-huh. some time now uh-huh. and we we certainly have the interest and support for the lack of a better term of the county they can't come out and say hey we're doing this because they have to go through the legislative well it's not legislative right. they have to go through the process by law mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they can't say yep let's do it because there is there's the laws in place that we have to follow to be able to get this approved right right so to your point we're um, we are hoping that because of that support of the government that we'll be able to say, hey, we answered all the questions, we've, we've put all the check marks in the boxes, and this helps provide a solution for attainable home ownership. Yeah. And hopefully they, they see that, they being the government, and that we can get the approvals that we need. Nice. So then um, now that we've chatted a bit about that, and I, I certainly want to talk more about it, I do want to hear about your own tiny home and, and your own story there. Sure. Where to begin? So it was, I want to say spring of 2018 <laughs> after I was really kind of putting in a lot of time and effort into an energy into the whole, well, what's the, what's really the problem? What's really going on with tiny homes and why can't we just buy them or build them and live in them? Mm-hmm. And I had, at, at one point, partnered up with uh, a local tiny home builder and was working with them because they were talking about community development. Looking back now and everything that I have gone through with the community development side of things, there there is no way that they would have been able to focus on building the the tiny home building like construction part of the business as well as doing the community development stuff because i i look at it a house divided doesn't stand right Mm -hmm. and if you're trying to do two different business models at the same time it's a little bit of a challenge yeah it's so much it really is a lot so throughout that process i originally was going to be helping them with the construction side of things as an electrician of course I, i'm very familiar with the construction process yeah. and how all that goes together and then the the, the question was asked is like well what do what does the company need to be able to get really moving in the in the construction side of things and they're like mm-hmm. well we need a model so my thought was like okay i will personally finance the construction of this of the first home the model home and then they would be able to use it for a model, and ultimately I would take ownership of it and live in it. Mm-hmm. Things didn't go according to plan, and part of the way through my shell building process, there was some issues, and I took leave. I I, I left the organization and brought my home with me, mm-hmm. then ultimately turned it into a DIY scenario. So it's like, okay, I have this giant, I mean, by giant, I mean, it's technically bigger than the average tiny home. I am, uh, since we're talking about that, I'll give you the specs. Yeah, yeah please uh, do. Yeah. Uh, her name is Mayraki. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mayraki is Greek for uh, to put a little of oneself into what you do. Hmm. There is no English translation. So Mayraki is Mayraki. And I, I think it's a little under-exaggerated because I put a lot of who I am into this home. Yeah, yeah. So I moved it to a different location and I finished building, oh, the specs, sorry. It is 37 feet long, okay, eight and a half feet wide, 
and then 13 six tall so mm-hmm. it's pretty standard my square footage is approximately 320 overall mm-hmm. however my livable square footage is about 289 because i have a garage not okay. a lot of tiny homes have garages but i do i can't put my car in it but like my tools my snowboard gear all that kind of stuff fits in there very nicely and it's outside of my actual living space which is great yeah that is nice so moved it to a the the next place in uh, up in lakewood colorado which is just west of denver mm-hmm. and spent a couple years essentially just getting it all together and knowing what i know now i probably should have used a professional builder <laughs> But I have I've learned a lot of fantastic things. And when I sit like I'm in my office right now, which is above my bathroom, that's why I'm I'm so close to the ceiling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I did learn a lot. And if I do ever build another one, it will be much better and it'll take a less time for sure. <laughs> yes. Yes. Do you plan to build another one? Maybe. Maybe. If yeah. If you would have asked me a year ago, it, the answer would have been definite. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But now that I'm, so I, I moved, when we closed on the property for Bonsai Village, it was uh, September, this past September. Uh-huh. And I've been, I've been living in it since mm-hmm. I have, there's been things that I've had to change. So I had to pull out the original toilet because it wasn't as functional as I thought it was going to be. I had to pull out the original vanity in the bathroom because it was one of those little teeny, teeny skinny ones, you know, that's hanging up on the wall. Yeah, And I had a mirror with shelves and things like that. And the very first day, Ethan, the very first day I was brushing my teeth and getting ready for bed. And I leaned down to spit into the sink and I hit my head on the shelf. <laughs> oh no. Okay. <laughs> so I had to change out the vanity. But as I, as I go through and I'm living in it and I'm feeling the tweaks and adjustments and I'm like, well, if I do another tiny home, I know I can do this differently and that differently to make it flow a little bit better and make yeah. it functional so yeah it's it, it might be in the future <laughs> yeah well maybe maybe the one the first one that you built will become a home available for rent in the village or actually i should ask is is the community is the idea that that there will be tiny houses built there that people can rent or is it a, a bring your own tiny home situation we really like the idea of a byoh uh, bring your own home just because of the fact that I've, I've got a laundry list of people that I know of that are just like me that already have a tiny home. We just yeah. need a legal place to put it. And I have, I've had friends relocate halfway across the state because the fact that they wanted a legal place to park their tiny home. So mm-hmm. they left one side to move to a place that actually has legal parking just yeah. so that way they yeah. can actually live in their home. It's a, it's a big, um, it's a big hurdle. I mean, it's it's probably the one, other than the financing, it, it's probably the biggest thing that's stopping more people from living tiny. Yes, I agree a hundred percent. Whenever I'm having conversations to the the lay folk, the mm-hmm. people who are not in the tiny home industry, that there's the there's three main problems with tiny homes. Number one, where do we put them? Number two. How do we pay for them? And number three, how do we insure them? Yeah. And I I listened to your podcast with Janet and discussing the ASTM initiative, Yep. which myself individually, as well as Life Size Tiny Communities as a company, 
is in full support of mm -hmm. the ASDM initiative because once we have a standard in place, then we know how all tiny homes across the country and across the globe really need to be built. Right. When you know that, then insurance companies are like, well, we can insure this because we know how it is put together. Yeah. And then once you have insurance, then the financial institutions are going to be like, well, our money is being protected because of the insurance company. So yeah, we can lend on that. And then if only, if only we had a company that was working on places to be able to put these things. <laughs> right, right. Let's face it. Most tiny house dwellers want their homes to be small, but not uncomfortable. That means reliable, unlimited hot water. Precision Temp's propane-fired hot water heaters reliably provide unlimited hot water, and they're specifically designed with tiny homes in mind. In fact, the NSP 550 model was installed in my own tiny home, and the reason I chose it was because it did not require a large hole in the side of my home like other RV hot water heaters. Instead, it mounts discreetly through the floor of the tiny house and works quietly and reliably. Right now, Precision Temp is offering $100 off any unit plus free shipping when you use the coupon code THLP at checkout. So head over to precisiontemp.com and use the coupon code THLP at checkout for $100 off plus free shipping. Thank you so much to Precision Temp for sponsoring our show. And there, there are some, there are a few other, you know, developers here and there that you hear of, you know, putting together tiny house communities in different models. Sometimes they build tiny houses. Sometimes it's bring your own home. What do you think makes tiny communities unique or, or what do you, what do you envision for tiny, um, life-size tiny communities that, that, you know, you don't see other developers doing? I think the thing that sets us apart is the fact that we're wanting to put something together that is replicable. Okay. That's duplicatable. So I, I've gone through and I've looked at some of these other communities and they're out there and they're great and they're full, mm -hmm. which is awesome. Yeah, they are always full, actually. <laughs> always full. And being able to have something that we can take the best of the best and the cream of the crop and put it into this nice little package that I can yeah. go to any city, any county across the country and say, hey, you have a housing problem? Let's look at this as a solution. That's mm. what I'm trying to accomplish. And then ultimately, Ethan, what I'd like to be able to do is create tiny home subdivisions, if that makes sense. Yeah. Where we can have relative sized parcels of land and put on all the infrastructure where we can get, the, all you got to do is wheel your tiny home in and you're good. And then you're considered single family. You're, you can start building the equity. You can start achieving that American dream, whatever that means. And usually it's, it's tied directly to home ownership. And that's why the missing middle that a lot of cities and counties talk about as far as those starter homes, for example, you know, starter homes don't really exist anymore because developers aren't making them anymore. They're not building them. Yeah. So if we're able to flip the real the residential real estate market on its head and say, stop building these giant 2,500, 3,000, 4,000 square foot houses on this little tiny piece of land, because most of the land is taken up by the house. 
Right, right. I mean, you got a little a little spot out in the front that your chihuahua can go take a pee, you know? <laughs> Heaven forbid you have a bigger dog like a German Shepherd or something like that. Right. <laughs> so if we're able to shift that paradigm where we can create these parcels of land and we can put tiny homes on them, whether we're building them or you have your own, whatever, and we'd be able to scale that into a volume that is affordable. Yeah. And that's the deal where we can have a package where you buy the land, you can get a tiny home from a builder of your choosing, and then you're good. And as the ASTM initiative continues to progress and we can start getting the the insurance and then the financing piece of this where somebody took out a 30-year mortgage for the combination of their tiny home and their their land, because at that point, a mortgage makes sense because it's, it's attached to the land. But it's still a tiny home and it should still retain its mobility piece because that's appealing to a lot of people. Like for me, for example, when I moved from Seattle, Washington to Denver, the thought has crossed my mind several times how cool it would have been to just drag my home from Seattle to Denver and set up shop. Right. That's the dream. Yeah, it, it is. And it really is. And the other thing that I would like to accomplish with LSTC, uh, Life Size Tiny Communities, is to essentially build enough of these where people can have bits of ownership and be able to, like, say, for example, you're a snowbird and you want to be in Colorado for the winter because you want to go skiing or you want to go snowboarding. But then the summertime, you prefer something different. You want to be at the beach. So you go to California, you go to Florida, you go up to New England, for example, you know, something like that. Where yep. I mean, summers up there in Vermont are probably pretty awesome. I would Quite imagine. nice. Yeah. <laughs> so that's just my brain thinking of how I, how I can help contribute mm-hmm. to the tiny home movement. Mm-hmm. And right now the need is quickly surpassing the resistance from cities and counties. Yeah. Which is, as you'd mentioned earlier, is the biggest hurdle. And that's what we're trying to accomplish. So what's, um, in terms of uh, Bonsai Village, what's uh, like, I guess you've been, you've been hearing this resistance, you've been working with the town. Where, where exactly are you in the process? Is there like a vote coming up? Is there a hearing or something? Like what, what's next? Not, no, uh, the, the voting and, and hearings will be coming up. Um, we're anticipating probably in the next six to nine months is what we're, we're, quoted, if you will, the next immediate step will be our official application, which we are anticipating just after the first of the year. Mm-hmm. And once that really is the, the application in and of itself has been the last probably four months worth of heavy engineering work. I've had multiple different surveyors out here on the property and back and forth with my engineering team, back and forth with my own internal team our PR folk. And it's just, it's it's a lot of stuff (laughs) to really kind of zero in on the laundry list. I mean, we're talking, I think it's close to 20 different types of documents that the county wants us to present up to and including a basic site plan of what we think this is going to look like when it's constructed. And of course, that's 2D at this point. Yeah eventually it'll be it'll become a 3d render but we've got it we've had to gather all these documents and produce things and 
put stuff in AutoCAD and all of that. So that way we can say, okay, here's our official submission, El Paso County. What do you think? And then from there, there's going to be some additional back and forth from the comments and questions and things from the actual county officials or the county engineer, the wastewater, water folks, uh, fire departments. Everybody's going to basically weigh in on what we think we want to do here. And throughout this process, there's also going to be public comment. The, the public, of course, will be able to express their concerns, raise mm -hmm. their questions, and ultimately, if, should they decide, they, there could there's the potential of lawsuits. Lawsuits coming in saying, we don't want this, and we're suing to basically shut the project down. I hope it doesn't come to that, but it is, it is a very real possibility wow. if the, the newbies are really adamant about not wanting this in their, I guess it would be in their front yard in this case, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's, so that's, that's the next immediate step. Wow. Wow. So it's still, still a long road ahead potentially. Yes. Uh, yeah. Six to nine months is what they're anticipating. If everything goes smoothly and we will ultimately go to the planning commission. So planning commission is the group of folks that basically decide, okay, how do we want the county to look in the next 20 years? Mm -hmm. And we, we make our case. They hear our side. They hear the other side of the, the surrounding community. And then they would make a recommendation to the board of county commissioners. Okay. So once they make their recommendation to the board of county commissioners, we do that all over again. We have another hearing where we're actually talking to the board and the board of county commissioners. Here's our side. Here's the other side. And then they make a decision to approve or deny the, the rezone. Mm -hmm. If they approve it, then everything is great. And we move forward with construction. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, and, and then in terms of the community itself, what will be the model that you see working in terms of like, will people rent their spot? Will they, will they buy in like a co-op? Like what's the, what's the membership model there? Ooh, talk about another loaded question. Or maybe you don't know yet. Oh no. Yeah. We, we've definitely decided, but. Okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I spent months on this question alone, Ethan, trying to determine what is going to be the best course of action for this first community. Mm -hmm. I've, I looked at co-op. I've looked at just straight sales. I've certainly looked at the leasing aspect, which by the way, is the, the direction that we are going. Mm -hmm. And the reason why we're doing the lease is because it's the, the least convoluted, the, the easier to manage and to employ in the real world. Absolutely. And on that side, is, as far as like investors are concerned, it's easy for them to put their money in, which is what we need them to do, because they know, well, it's going to be X number of, of tiny homes and there's going to be X number of dollars every month for however many years. And it's, it's easy for them to commit. Yeah. So as we grow through this, not only this first community, but the next couple of communities, the, like I said, the, the tiny home subdivision aspect that will be a, it'll be a new endeavor at that point. Mm -hmm. It's like, we don't know 
how many people are actually going to be able to buy the little plots of land in our right. subdivision. Right. So it's a, it's a big question. The co-op aspect. Oh man, I spent a lot of time just on the co-op aspect because there's, there's a lot of appeal of like-minded individuals like we have in the tiny home world because we're, we're, we're tiny home people. Yeah. We like that, the sustainability aspect. And then when I, I've talked to a lot of real estate professionals in the, about this whole co-op thing, and it's like you have a hundred people and everybody's got a differing opinion of things. And how, how do you actually make that decision on what gets done, what doesn't get done? And this is why Greek democracy way back in the day, you know, Socrates and all that Greek democracy, like pure democracy yeah. failed because things weren't getting done. Everybody had a different opinion. Everybody had to do thing. And that's why, that's why I love our country. Uh, the, good old United States of America, because we are a democratic Republic Mm -hmm. and the Republic aspect, we elect these individuals to work on our behalf and things actually, well, things don't get done probably as much as they should, but things get done. (laughs) So the co-op aspect is, is, is appealing. And I would like to be able to do that, but I don't know how that would actually work in the, in the real world, as far as you know, governing documents and how all those things, but then in, then you start getting into that whole Republic thing and it's less of a co-op. So it might work on a, a small scale. So you have 10 people that could probably be a functional co-op in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Speaking just from experience living in, in condominiums and dealing with homeowners associations, I would, <laughs> I would think that even like-minded people, you know, you can get a lot of disharmony when it comes to living together. So I think I think the leasing aspect is actually smart and and potentially appealing to people because you know the thing that makes tiny homes affordable is the fact that they're disconnected from the land. And for for many I would imagine that you know they might be putting their savings into owning their tiny home outright and they might not be able to buy in to a, to a co-op or to a a small parcel of land. So, Mm -hmm. you know, having options for legal tiny living, that is, you know, you're leasing a spot, you're not going to get hassled. You're not going to get asked to leave. All the hookups are there. It's level. It's flat. It's safe. I think that's appealing. Level and flat is certainly um, appealing (laughs) in and of itself. Oh yeah. My tiny home right now, we, we have, so it is a mountain community. Mm Mm-hmm. And both on the north and the south sides of this property are mountains. Yep. So like on the south side right now, I mean, it's the darkest day of the year, right? We're at the winter solstice. It sure is. And I think about 2.30, the sun went behind the mountain and it's just, it's done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but because of the, the way that the land is, is relatively flat considering its surroundings, but we do have some topography. Mm-hmm. And I have, I've had a challenge trying to get my tiny home to just be level. (laughs) Oh yeah. What have you, um, what have you tried? What have, what have you found that works or what is working for you right now? I have, I have the, the door side, which would be the passenger side way higher on the jacks Mm -hmm. (laughs) than Mm -hmm. everything else. Um, you know, and this is just my own thing is like, 
I think I need to probably have my tires either checked or replaced because I feel like I have a slow leak that's happening and mm. things are sort of sagging a little bit on one side or the other. And this is just tiny home problems, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Leveling is hard. I have to say, I, I struggle with the same thing in my, in my home, not having ever parked in a legit spot, like, you know, never, never having like a prepared spot. So it's always just on a lawn somewhere, mm-hmm. uh, just sinking. Oh, over time. I could actually share with you a picture of my, of my sinkage, uh, when I was building it. Oh yeah, please do. I'd love to put it in, uh, you know, and, and, you know, we're seeing each other right now, but I'll put it on the show notes page for the episode. So, so listeners can check it out if, if that's okay yeah, with you. Absolutely. I have a, um, a Google photo album that oh, nice. I documented my entire build process. Nice. And uh, of course, when I had to fix the sinking, cause I was on like good soil, it was in a residential backyard basically, mm-hmm. and it was good dirt and it's just, it kept going and going and going. And I'm like, I need to do something about this. So I had yeah. to go get like a, some 12 ton, whatever bottle jack. So I could actually get the thing up off of the yeah. ground and then yeah. pull it all up and then put the dirt back in and shore everything. And it was just, it was a, <laughs> yeah, it was a mess. Yeah. So I actually want to chat. So are you, do you work as an electrician currently? Yes. Okay. I, I work full time, so forty hours a week. And right now, we're doing a a, a multi-family apartment building downtown Colorado Springs. Okay, and it's probably not attainable housing, but it certainly is more housing that we definitely need. But the rental market here, as well as throughout Colorado, is is insane. Yeah, and that's why people are building multi-family apartments because they know they can get a premium for it. Because well, we don't have enough housing. Right. Right. I suppose it's better than single family stuff. Yeah. The multifamily versus single family aspect. This uh-huh. is the, the one thing that I really like about tiny homes is because it it's a little bit of both. Yeah. It has the the sense of privacy and ownership of single family mm-hmm. because it's a tiny home and you, it's yours mm-hmm. and it has the a little bit of that form and functionality of the multifamily aspect because you're able to put the you can have the higher density with the the tiny homes versus when you're doing single family that's 2500 square feet for example so it it's a little bit of the best of both worlds in my opinion yeah and that's what we're we're trying to uh, achieve that in terms of the community development aspect certainly certainly so have you gotten to work so when you built your tiny house you were already an electrician right yes okay Yep, I've been an electrician. It'll be uh, it'll be ten years next All right. year. All right, congratulations! <laughs> Thank you. Um, curious if you can talk a little bit about how you wired your tiny house. Like how you know how many amps is the house wired for? Did you do solar? You know when you built it. Did just talk about you know as an electrician building your own tiny house. What kind of calculations did you do and, and, and how did it all come out? Sure. That's a great question, actually. Originally, I, I did what's called the standard calculation based out of the National Electric Code. Okay. And the standard calculation basically gives me a platform on how I calculate how big of a wire I need to feed my tiny home. 
And when I did the calculation, I came out to 87 and a half amps. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly unorthodox in the tiny home world. And that's largely due to the fact that I do not have any gas. I don't, I don't have any propane. I, I, mm-hmm. my hot water is electric. It's, it's just, it's all electric because, well, I'm an electrician. <laughs> so I, I sized my main panel for a hundred amps. Damn. Cause they don't have an 87 and a half amp panel. Okay. So I've got a hundred amp panel and I actually did, um, I have two panels actually. I have my main and I also have a sub, my sub panel. I put all of my critical loads, like the mini split, the uh, refrigerator, some plugs and lights. Mm-hmm. So the, the intention behind that was when I do actually get someplace that I'm more permanent where I can actually put solar and I have space in my electrical closet where I have, I could put a stack of batteries to and an inverter to be able to pull in the solar and do everything, the interconnect. Um, side note on that, I actually have, oh, I told you about this, my degree in photovoltaic design. Uh-huh. So I, I, I made this preparation for the intention of having solar because I still want to be self-sustainable and I want to be able to, you know, help save the planet, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. So, as far as the, I, I sized everything based off of that calculation. And as it turns out, in El Paso County, tiny homes are only allowed to be cord and plug connected. So, I can't hardwire my tiny home into a, an electrical supply. So, for 100 amps, well, there is not an option for cord and plug for a hundred amps because they just, they, they don't make it. Usually right. when you get to that size, you're hardwiring, whatever the equipment is. Right. That's okay. a, that's a major plug. Yeah. Major plug. <laughs> so they don't do it. Yeah. Uh, so I'm like, okay, well, let's see how this goes. So I went and got, I, I replaced my hundred amp main breaker with a 50 amp traditional mm-hmm. uh, deal. And I, I installed the, the cord and plug setup. So I've got the deal on the side of the house that I put the thing in the yep. screws on. And then I've got the the other end connected to a traditional style RV 50 amp plug. And in my reluctance, I said, okay, I really, I really got to make sure I'm watching all of this. And I went and got one of the, um, a power monitor and I pulled out, pulled open the panel and I put the little things on all the circuits and on yep. the main and all this stuff. And I'm sitting here for like the first couple of weeks, I'm watching it, I'm watching it, I'm watching it. <laughs> and as it turns out, I can do everything in my home on the 50 amps and I have yet to exceed even 75% mm-hmm. of the capacity on my 50 amp service. And I've, I've, I've had the washing machine running, the dryer running. I've had the dishwasher running. I've been watching TV. I've got the computer on and I've watched it on the power monitor and yeah. it's like not even batting an eye. And a friend of mine, she told me she's after I explained all this to her, she's like, Joe, I knew you oversized your entire everything in your tiny. <laughs> and I said, well, you live and learn. Yeah. Better to oversize it than undersize it, of course. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And as far as like sizing goes, I, I did 20 amp circuit breakers uh-huh. and 12 gauge wire on everything. Uh-huh. So I'm, I'm, I have plenty of capacity as far as that concerned. The only piece of equipment that I didn't put a 20 amp breaker on is my mini split. 
And that's just because of the fact that the manufacturer says max fuse is 15 amps. So they only want the capacity of 15 amps running to the mini split. So that's what I put. Okay. 15 amps. Right. So it would, it would trip the fuse if it drew more than 15. Yeah. Got it. Has it been difficult to find parking spots with, with enough power? Well, luckily for me, I went after I left the organization when I started building this. Mm-hmm. I had a there was a in a backyard of a, a couple of friends and then I moved to a different backyard of another friend and I haven't the only power that I've really needed was just generator power to build it. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I we closed on this property and I moved it directly here. Okay, so, so you're on the property now yourself. Yes. I am on the property now myself. Uh, the main house that is existing essentially is vacant. I just got it warm enough so that way stuff doesn't freeze. And I have, it's a, a full 200 amp service in the main house. Yeah. And I'm only taking 50 amps of that. Actually, I, I took the breaker from their hot tub because <laughs> I was like, I'd rather have my tiny house than the hot tub. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm starting to regret that now. Maybe I should power up the hot tub. <laughs> <laughs> So are you technically legal there in with one house on this property? So that is a good question. And <laughs> I do. Technically, I have a project open with the county and I have been working with El Paso County Public Health as well as Regional Building Department, the Pikes Peak Regional Building Department and the zoning and planning folk. I have a, a few more documents that I've got to put together. I'm waiting for public health and the uh, state water department because I have to submit documents to zoning and planning saying that the current septic system and the current well has the capacity to serve my tiny home. Mm-hmm. And then I have to give them a little couple sentence explanation on how I'm skirting my tiny home. Uh, once I submit those last three documents, then yes, I will be 100% legit with El Paso County. Fantastic. Skirting is definitely a thing because we're we're in a mountain community. It's a little windy up here. It's a little chilly sometimes at night. And I've had a couple of drain lines freeze over the last couple, I'd say within the last two weeks. And I started putting the rough skirting up with uh, just some OSB and put some foam board on the back of it. So that way it kind of helped block in the wind. Mm-hmm. And we got to make sure people are skirting their tiny homes. <laughs> yeah. So how, how are you skirting your tiny home? So right now I just have, you know, they, they've got OSB, which by the way, OSB is usually cheap wood, you know, a couple, three bucks a panel and it's almost 10 bucks a panel right now. So it's, it's definitely a pricey endeavor just to be able to put skirting on my home. Uh, but essentially, I'm just boxing in underneath my trailer because I did a trailer made custom trailer and they've got the nice flanges that come out where the walls come down. So I've got lots of space underneath. So I'm just boxing in right now and, and securing the wood to itself, basically, as I'm building the box. And I'm putting some nice one inch foam. I mm-hmm. guess I say nice, uh, but essentially one inch foam on the back side of that underneath the trailer. So that yep. way there's a little bit of an R value there. Yep. And then once I get it all boxed in, I'm probably going to do some type of corrugated metal that may be uh, probably black to be able to match the trailer. Just so that way there is a little bit of 
weather resistance to that. So if the, when the snow melts, it's going up against the metal as opposed to being on the wood because OSB will soak up moisture like nobody's business. And uh, I'm just trying to do it cheaply and quickly because ultimately this is not where my home is going to sit. Once Bonsai Village is done, then I'm going to be moving on that nice level concrete pad. <laughs> and uh, then I'll put a, a more permanent type of skirting. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, is there anything that I, that I haven't asked you about that you were hoping to to kind of talk about and let the listeners of the, of the tiny house lifestyle podcast know about? Uh, no, I, I think that's, I think you've pretty much covered a lot. And uh, talking about Bonsai Village is certainly important. Um, life-size tiny communities. We're, we're committed to the tiny home industry. Mm-hmm. I like to refer to it as an industry more than a movement these days, because we are, we're working to legitimize us as an industry across the, well, across the globe, really. Yeah. And I, I like to believe that because I am a tiny home owner, I can connect, I can relate to, and I can work with the, the tiny home industry as a whole. And then of course, as my business partner once told me the other day, he says, Joe, you're the face of this company and good, bad, or indifferent. I like to be able to be that interface between tiny home people and then the public at large. Yeah. So we can help dispel that misinformation. We can help paint the picture of the lifestyle that we're choosing. And whatever, for whatever reason that people are choosing this lifestyle, we should at the very least have it as an option. All right. Well, Joe Callantine, thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. It was really wonderful to to finally connect and uh, and hear hear all about life size. Yeah. Again, Ethan, I appreciate you having me on. And if anybody's got any questions, or they can always check us out on online, lifesizetinycommunities.com. Communities is plural. Or you can reach me directly via our website or just simply joe at lifesizetinycommunities.com. Awesome. Yeah. And I'll put links to everything and some photos um, in on the show notes page for this episode. Sure. That sounds great. Thank you so much to Joe Callantine for being a guest on the show today. You can find the show notes, including a full transcript at thetinyhouse.net slash 197. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 197. Well, that's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.